Before time began, there was the cube. We know not where it comes from, only that it holds the power to create worlds and fill them with life. That is how our race was born. For a time, we lived in harmony. But like all great power, some wanted it for good, others for evil. And so began the war. A war that ravaged our planet until it was consumed by death. And the cube was lost to the far reaches of space. We scattered across the galaxy, hoping to find it and rebuild our home. Searching every star, every world. And just when all hope seemed lost, message of a new discovery drew us to an unknown planet called Earth. But we were already too late. My name is Optimus Prime. We are autonomous robotic organisms from the planet Cybertron. But you can call us Autobots for short. Autobots? Why are you here? We are here looking for the Allspark. And we must find it before Megatron. Mega what? Our planet was once a powerful empire. Peaceful and just. Until we were betrayed by Megatron, leader of the Decepticons. All who defied them were destroyed. Our war finally consumed the planet, and the Allspark was lost to the stars. Megatron followed it to Earth, where Captain Witwicky found him. Megatron crash-landed before he could retrieve the cube. If the Decepticons find the Allspark, they will use its power to transform Earth's machines and build a new army. And the human race will be extinguished. Sam Witwicky, you hold the key to Earth's survival. Modern technology science fiction but the plot is as ancient as mankind whether we're talking about star wars or whether we're talking about the matrix or the lord of the rings or the transformers they all repeat a familiar storyline good versus evil and caught in between are the helpless creatures some abdicate toward the dark side lost in all of its darkness, evil. Others helplessly cry out for an epic hero, a hero of uncommon courage, someone who possessed a supernatural power that can actually deliver them from the dark side. Here's the question. Is it just fiction? Or is there a thread of truth from which these stories are spun? I want you to think about the world around you right now. It's not science fiction. There is an unmistakable growing presence of evil around the world and even in our own culture. 
Where does that very real evil come from? The Bible tells us that it comes from a being called Lucifer, also known as Satan, the devil, or the dragon. He was the most beautiful creature ever created. No other creation surpasses his beauty, but his heart is dark and evil, and he wants to destroy the work of God. He's been cast down to the earth, and he is very angry. So who will tell them? Who are these heroes of uncommon courage and supernatural power? Where can they be found? Where are the transfers, the very real transformers of this day and age? And the answer to the question is right here. You, every one of you who is a follower of Jesus Christ, you are God's transformer meant to meet more than just the eye. God has a purpose for your life. You are that epic hero of uncommon courage and supernatural power. The Spirit of God has been given to you and the Word of God has been placed in your life to break down every form of deceit and dishonesty. Say, are you serious? Am I really, are we really transformers yes you are i am we are together the body of christ god has given us immense capacity to change the culture around us listen to what jesus said about us found in matthew chapter 5 beginning at verse 13 read it aloud with me you are the salt of the earth but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor can you make it salty again it will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples then and to his disciples now in this room. Read it with me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
So Jesus says, go, and then he says, and I will go with you. And finally, before he ascended in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he spoke these words. Let's read them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Something is terribly, terribly wrong. And what's so terribly wrong is that even though we've been given this power and been given this command by Jesus, we are failing miserably. It's estimated, and this is a conservative figure, that every day, every single day, 80,000 individuals die and go to a Christless eternity because they've never heard the gospel presented to them. It is said that in America, the average Christian will never lead one person to Jesus or share the gospel their entire life. In fact, of the 360,000 churches in our country today, only 1% are growing by what we would call true conversion growth. That is, they're growing mostly by reaching people for Christ. Something's terribly wrong. And if you don't like what's going on in our culture today, don't blame the Democrats and don't blame the Republicans. You've got to join me and accept the fact that it's our fault. It is the church that is failing the culture. And it's why we're dealing with a culture that is so far from God because we have kept the message so close to ourselves. I'm not here to beat you or myself up this morning except, you know, sometimes we've got to deal with a dose of reality so we can fix it, so we can change it because it's never too late. God's power can spark a transformation that could turn into a revival that would change towns and cities and states and even a nation. God's waiting for us to step up the plate and be the transformers he's called us to be. Why is it we are so indifferent to the world? Is it because Satan is so powerful? Because he is powerful. His power is in his deceit. He's very well organized. Ephesians 6.12 puts it this way. It says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Those are all rankings. Satan's very organized and very mobilized. He wants nothing more than to deceive and lead people astray and from God's plan of salvation. He hates God, and he hates those who love God. But you know what? God is far more powerful, far more superior to Satan. There can't even be a comparison made. I came across a verse at the end of the book of Jude, the last book before the book of Revelation. It's just one chapter long. So we say Jude 25, verse 25 says, say it with me, all glory to him who alone is God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. I think God's pretty powerful, don't you? All the power belongs to him. But get this. That power has been seated in your life and my life if we're really followers of Jesus. John wrote these words, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. He said, but you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people 
Because the spirit who lives in you, finish it with me, is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Did you get that? Because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit that lives in the the world. So we've got everything we need. We are powerful beings when we are letting God be himself through our lives. I don't think the reason we're indifferent toward the world is because we're really afraid of the world. Because Satan's more powerful because he's not. Maybe it's because maybe it's because we're angry at the world, angry at our culture. I can't blame people for being angry at the culture. I feel anger toward this culture sometimes personally. I mean, when I see the vices of our culture, when I think about the stuff that's out there that can ruin my life and your life, when I see what it does to marriages, when I see what it does to to children, when I see what it does to students, there's so many temptations out there right now. I mean, sexual temptations, pornography, affairs, you know, different uh, lifestyles, when I look at what's going on with greed and materialism and anger and bigotry and racism and hatred and, and the whole cauldron of evil that's out there today, it's a scary, dangerous place. And I don't blame anybody for being angry at what the culture has done or is trying to do to their children or their grandchildren and then running into a fortress and barricading ourselves and saying, you know what, I want nothing to do with that world. Because the world is mean and some, have been, some of us have been very hurt by this culture, haven't we? Sometimes we are victims and other times we just get sucked into it. But I don't think that's why we're indifferent towards the world, though some people may feel that way. Maybe we're indifferent toward the world because we like it that way. Maybe there is something about the world being so bad that makes us feel better about ourselves. You know, if the world is really bad, it kind of makes my goodness that much more visible and sometimes we fall into this trap of measuring our relationship with God by our sense of goodness even though I know I'm saved by grace even though I know that I can't earn God's favor that Jesus died on the cross for my sins even though I know that I still fall into this trap sometimes as his follower of thinking I've got to kind of earn it it's kind of a pride issue that, that I've got to be good enough for God. And how, how do you know if you're good enough for God if you can't contrast yourself against somebody else? So I'm always looking for somebody that I'm better than so I can feel better about myself. That's how the Pharisees were. And the Pharisees were totally into hating sinners, abhorring the sinners, the prostitutes, the adulterers, the adulteresses, the thieves, you know, the whole list, laundry list that they classified as sinners. They, they hated sinners, but in a weird way, they needed sinners because those sinners made them feel better about themselves. They kind of put the spotlight on their righteousness. And maybe, maybe some of us are indifferent toward the world because there's just something about the world being bad that makes our goodness feel a little bit better. But I don't think that's the main reason why we struggle so much in our culture. I don't think it's the main reason why we are indifferent toward our culture. I think it's a lot deeper than that. And instead of me trying to explain it to you, I want to actually allow somebody to give their testimony to you. This person at one time was an arch enemy of Jesus. He wanted to destroy the thought of Christ the memory of Christ, because he didn't believe Christ had resurrected, 
and he wanted to destroy the Christian movement. And what's so strange about him is that he was in league with the evil one, but if you had told him that, he would spit in your face and had you put to death. Because he would never, 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 never think that he was evil. He thought that he was very good and very righteous. And those are the most dangerous enemies are the ones who think that they're doing good when they're actually doing bad. You and I know him as the Apostle Paul, but there was a time when he was a very, very evil, bad man. So take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 26 where we get his story. Acts chapter 26. And I want us to look at how we can change the world. And I really want our students to pay attention because, guys and gals, I want you to know that you have, the, you have one of the biggest potentials to change the world. Do you know that almost every major shift that happened in our culture as a country... The great revivals, you know, it started with young people. A lot of people don't know that. It started with students who got right with God. So you could be the ones that lead a huge change. Listen to what it says here in Acts chapter 26. I'm going to be reading to you out of the New Living Translation. Paul is speaking before King Agrippa. He's giving kind of a defense, his testimony. He says, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus in Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. One day I was on a mission to Damascus armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. About noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Who are you, Lord? I asked, and the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. You are to tell the world what you have seen and what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And remember, Paul would have hated the Gentiles. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness of their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Now, I want to jump ahead to a letter Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, because we get a little bit more bi- biographical information about Paul. This is a trustworthy saying, it says in 1 Timothy 1, 15. And everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them all. Have you ever felt that way? I have. I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. I mean, Paul just rises with a word of praise because he just realizes what God has done for him. So we see Paul going from the kingdom of darkness, as it said there, into the kingdom of light. We see Paul's life radically changed. He's become this 
powerful transformer for God. And the Bible tells us that Paul, or I mean, uh, legend tells us that Paul was a man who was bald-headed, which I like a lot. He had a crooked nose, he had a hump back, and he had uh, um, bold legs, it says, according to, you know, historians and tradition. He was a man of small stature, but he had a grand spirit. Spirit of Christ living in him. He was a powerful force. And over the next four weeks, we're going to see how God used Paul to change a very wicked culture in Ephesus. And we're going to learn practically how we can change our culture too. But I want you to notice the effect, the effect that his change had on him, his encounter with Jesus. In a kind of an obscure passage in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, we read how Paul felt toward his Jewish brothers and sisters who now we're trying to kill him because he had turned away from the faith and was actually preaching Christ. Romans 9.1, he says, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. Now he's saying, please listen to me. I'm not making this up. I'm not exaggerating. I'm telling you right now, my conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. For my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, I am willing to lose my salvation, if that were possible. I'm willing to be cursed by by God, if it meant that my brothers and sisters, my people, would Come to know Christ and go to heaven. I would give up my life. I would give up my eternal salvation if that were possible. What is it that caused Paul to care so much about lost people? What is it that caused this man to make such huge sacrifices in his life? And the answer is one word, and it's the word love. See, Paul loved the world that Jesus died for so much that he was willing to sacrifice what was familiar to him. He was willing to sacrifice what was, you know, his traditions. He was willing to sacrifice what was comfortable to him. He was willing to sacrifice money. He was willing to sacrifice success. He was willing to sacrifice reputation. He was willing to sacrifice his health. He was even willing to sacrifice his body and his very soul if he could just so one person could know the truth of Jesus' love. What is it that has caused us to become indifferent to our culture? To not care if we ever lead anybody to Jesus, why only 1% of our churches are growing by conversion growth, it is our lack of love for this world. It is our lack of love for a lost world. For men and women and young people who don't know Jesus yet. That's the problem. The honest truth is, I include myself in this as well. The honest truth is, a lot of us aren't willing to sacrifice for others to come to know the faith. We don't want to give up our traditions. We don't want to give up our preferences. We don't want to give up our programs. We don't want to give up our money, our time, our ties, our talents. We don't want to give up our bodies. We don't want to give up our our mental energy to engage the culture. We're, we just 
we just think that life is all about us and we have no concept of eternity that we talk about all the time. We live as though this is eternity. We live as though this is the only life we're going to have and it's slipping by that fast. We just don't love the world. Don't love our fellow students. We don't love our fellow workers. We don't love our neighbors. It's all about us. It's about us and about our groupie. It's about us and about our church. It's about us and preserving what always has been while the world goes to hell by the moment. We don't care. We say we care, but you show by your actions. We're not making a difference. And someday you and I are going to stand before God. I'm going to tell you what. There's a lot of stuff that God's going to look at. And he's going to say in one second, why on earth did you make that your passion and that your energy while people I died for are spending eternity without me? Why did that matter so much when all of eternity is at stake, when souls are at stake and people are dying? Folks, we're in a triage, 911 situation right now. There are people perishing as I speak. And the church in America doesn't give a rip. The stuff we get ourselves focused on, the stuff that matters to us, that has no eternal consequence whatsoever. And Jesus died for these souls. You say, well, how do I get that kind of love working in my heart? I look at Paul and I go, you know what, Paul? Paul could never get over what it cost God to save him. And I just look at myself and I just go, man, how many days do I go through? Do I, how many weeks do I go through? And I don't bother to just stop and think, what did it cost God to save me? Like I deserve it? No. What did he do for me? What did he do for you? And then I look at Paul and I go, here's a guy who when he was saved, he realized, oh, I've been saved to a purpose. I have been saved to tell others about Jesus. I may have my job, my gifts, my talents, my skills, but that's not why I've been left here. I don't know about you, but I keep asking myself over and over and over again, if God has saved me, why did he leave me here on earth? To gain more knowledge about him? No, I have all eternity to do that. Why did he leave me here on earth so I can build my own Lord kingdom? No. Everything I have is going to disappear someday. Why did God leave us here on earth? Why didn't he beam us up? It's so that we as the body of Christ could be Jesus to this world and bring people by love and grace and serving them and meeting their needs and giving them the gospel message. They could have the same opportunity before he calls us home. That's why he left us here, folks. That's why he left me. That's why he left you. That's why he left his church. It must grieve his heart to see his church playing games. And we're all going to give an account for it. We're not going to lose our salvation over it, but we are going to stand and give an account for it. Why aren't people coming to faith? Because we don't love the world the way God loved the world. You students, why, you know, If you're a follower of Jesus today, why did he leave you here on earth? So that you can go to school, go to college, get a nice job, live in a nice home, have a boat, have a car, go on vacation, save for retirement, have a good life? No. He's left you here because he wants to use all the gifts, talents, abilities he's given you to change this rotting culture. 
Same thing is true for each one of us. That's how, that's how movements happen. It's when people rise up and realize, oh, I've got a purpose in life, and they get serious about it and become transformers. So I'm not gifted, I'm not qualified, I don't have an education, I haven't been in seminary, thank God for that, seriously. You don't need to, you just need to be surrendered to Jesus. Say, Pastor, are you trying to get us to go door to door and whop people over the head with 50-pound Bibles? Absolutely not. Next four weeks, we're going to talk about how to do this in the right way, the loving way, the gracious way. Not just going to be about what we say, but by what we do as well. But you've got to be willing. I've got to be willing to sacrifice. Let me tell you two stories. A couple of weeks ago, I was out in California speaking to missionaries and some pastors. And I just realized how much, how much those people sacrificed to let other people know about Jesus. And I had to fly home, and on the way home, I had, I, I had to catch a different plane to San Francisco. And every time in, I'm in San Francisco, I go through a very painful experience in my life. See, about 12 years ago, I had an opportunity to go and pastor a church in the, in the middle of the city of San Francisco, an old historic church that D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, once spoke in. But I, I chickened out. I didn't go. My kids were younger. I was afraid to raise them in that very wicked city. I knew I'd always have to look up to see the sky. You can't look out because you got all these buildings around you. It was very, very, very expensive. And the gay district was right across the street from where the church was and all those issues. And I, and I, just, I just had a conversation and I let the whole thing go. And ever since then... There's been something gnawing inside of me that's kind of bothered me. Like, I wasn't willing to sacrifice. I wasn't willing to trust God. I wasn't willing to believe that God could use me in that situation. Would Paul have gone? Paul went to Corinth. Why was I unwilling to go there? And it's bothered me. And every time I fly through that place, my heart just aches. And I just find myself in deep-seated prayer for that city. God brought them a great pastor. Thank God for that. But I always say to myself, every time I fly over San Francisco, which isn't that often, and every time I think about it, though, and I see a picture of it, I think to myself, I will never do that again. I will never, never resist going someplace hard or difficult because I'm unwilling to sacrifice or take a risk. What's keeping you right now? From just reaching across the neighborhood, from just reaching across at school, from just reaching across at work. What's keeping you from sacrificing that others might come to know Jesus Christ? Well, I know you're probably tired of hearing me tell you grandparent stories, but that's all right. You'll get over it. (laughs) Only a grandparent could appreciate this, but I was just down in San Antonio for my granddaughter's first birthday. She turned one years old on Friday. They had the big party yesterday. And I came back here to, to do ministry instead. But um, she's just the cutest little thing in the world. Just like my, my grandson, Harrison, is just the cutest little guy. And uh, I, I took her out to a very fancy restaurant for lunch on Friday. In, in Texas, they, it's called McDonald's. And um, I fed her, this is such a huge privilege, I'm almost tearing up for it, I fed her her very first Happy Meal. 
And I intend to do that for my grandson too. It's like, it's going to be a thing, you know what I mean? Every birthday, you know, I don't care, even, you know, when they're 20, I'm going to take them to McDonald's. It will be a tradition, the Happy Meal. And so, you know, I got her the hamburger hop, Happy Meal without onions and um, the French fries. And, and she took the French fries out with the little fingers and she dipped it in the ketchup and then she would suck the ketchup off and she put the fry down and I'd eat it. Just kidding. All right. But she would do that. She would just put the fry in and suck the ketchup off. She loves salsa. She, you know, she's got the whole Latino thing going on and her, her daddy's from Ecuador. And, and, and it was just a, it was a wonderful mess. A wonderful mess. I can't tell you how much I love my granddaughter and how much I love my grandson. I can't explain it to you. It's so powerful in me. But I felt God speaking to me. And asking me if I would be willing to move far away from them to bring the gospel to someone who's never heard before. And oh man, I just felt this huge rip inside of me, this huge tug. I love them so much, I want to be near them, next to them, hold them, kiss them, love them, play with them. But I know they've got good godly parents who love the Lord. I know they're going to get raised up in good Christian homes. Would I be willing to sacrifice that so that others could hear and know about Jesus. Yes. Hard, painful, difficult, but yes. Are you willing to make sacrifices? Because you know how much it costs God to save you. And you know there's only one purpose to live for in life ultimately. And that is to make him known to a world that is lost. Will you make that sacrifice? Will you be the transformer that God wants you to be. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we humble ourselves here before you, O God. We confess to you, Lord, that many of us struggle with indifference toward the world. We get passionate about the Bears. We get passionate about the Cubs or the White Sox. We get passionate, Lord, about our hobbies. We get passionate about our our the things that we love to do, Father, but we honestly, Father, have no passion for people who don't know you yet. And it's so wrong and it's so sinful. And we ask you, join me in your own heart. We ask you for forgiveness this morning. Lord, I pray in this series, teach us how to love the world around us. Because if we don't like it, there's only one, to change, one way to change it, and that is to love the people. Not call us to love necessarily what they do, but to love them. And Father, we want to see our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers come to at least here have the opportunity to know your life-changing power. So Lord, I pray that there's nothing, nothing that would keep us. No sacrifice too great that would prevent us from showing your love to a lost world. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to go leave all this familiar and comfortable if that's what you were to say to us. To be used by you to change the world around us. In Jesus' name.